Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. I have an honest question to ask yourself this morning as we start, and that is, do you get more upset by the people on your left or on your right? I don't mean physically, don't look around next to the people right next to you. I mean, generally, conceptually, do you, are you more upset with the people in your life? The, who, who are the ones who trigger you? People and positions that disturb you are those people that tend to be maybe more conservative than you or more liberal than you? And I don't mean just on politics, I mean in all of life. And of course, we all are convinced that we're balanced, right? Of course, I'm in the balanced position and there's people to my left and right. But when you're honest and look at your own heart, as objectively as possible, which kind of person are you? Are you the one who's more upset by people on your left or your right? Now, hold on to that thought, and we'll come back to it. Here at Sojourn, uh, we are continuing our series, preaching through the New Testament book that we call Galatians. It's a letter that was written about 2,000 years ago by a very important early Christian theologian named Paul. And I'll tell you at the outset that that creates a couple of problems for us both the 2,000 years part and the letter part. You see, this 2,000-year gap between when the text is written and us means that we really have to go backwards and and understand some things going on uh, in Paul's day to make sure we understand what he's saying. And the letter part is somewhat problematic too because this is a kind of communication that's actually kind of difficult to interpret. This is not a textbook on microbiology that's making its points clear with little boxes or something. This is not like the instructor's manual that came with your new CPAP machine, or it's not even like a book that's making a clear argument from beginning to end. A letter like Galatians has a point, but we're only really kind of hearing one half of a conversation, and it's often very personal and very intense. So it can be a little tricky to interpret. That's the bad news. The good news is that God is very happy 
to speak to us this morning, even through a 2,000-year-old letter, because actually it's Holy Scripture, of which Galatians is a part, that can shape and transform our loves and our hopes and our, our thoughts and challenge us. But to get there, we have a little work to do. So what I want to do this morning, we've, we've heard the text read, I just want to make two steps And that is first to just ask, what happened? Like, what was happening in these verses, all the stuff Paul's talking about? And then secondly, what does it mean? And then once we've made those two steps, then we can ask, what in the world would this mean to you and me today? So let me pray for us once more as we begin. God, we are people uh, who cannot control even our own heart beating and the length of our lives, In every way, we are dependent on you. And so we look to you today and ask you that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can understand things. We can understand ourselves, we can understand the world, and we can understand you through Scripture. So please come and speak now, I ask in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. And if you, uh, we had the text read, I encourage you to have the bulletin there in front of you. It's got the text printed or grab a Bible if you want. Because here we are, at the first step then, what happened? So Galatians 2, 1 to 10, is actually really part of a longer section of this letter. Uh, it started back, Pastor Kevin started speaking on this a couple weeks ago, uh, in 1, 1, and goes all the way through the end of chapter 2. And the whole thing, uh, Paul is relating a bunch of stuff that happened over the course of a couple of decades, really. Now, most of Paul's letters are very heavy in instruction on teaching, and he will get to that in chapters three and following. But really, these first couple of chapters are all this kind of autobiography to make a point of things that had happened to him. And Paul does tell, tell us a bunch of stuff. The problem is that these 10 or these 11 verses, 2, 1 to 10, um, are kind of hard to follow because they, they're an example from the passionate apostle Paul of what I've described to you before when I've been in front of you, what I like to call, if you give a Paul a cookie. Because he says one thing, and then he's a really bright guy, and so he thinks of something else he wants to say, and he says something about that, and then he kind of goes down, and next thing, and, and in fact, it's actually kind of hard to follow, and scholars and commentators who have commented on this text often point out, yeah, it's kind of, he's clearly saying something, but the logic of it is not always clear uh, clear to us. It's rather convoluted. In fact, the translation that I had us read was a very good one, smooths out some of those even more than you might realize. But the reason his argument is so hard to follow is because what Paul is saying here is both very important and very nuanced. So what he's trying to say is, is very difficult. He's navigating a, a careful way. And so that makes his argument kind of hard to follow. But I think I can sum it up for you with a couple of statements. Let me, let me do that for you. A couple of statements I think sum up what Paul's trying to argue in these verses. First, Paul is saying that he was called by God to preach the true message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And specifically, this message means that Gentiles, so non-Jewish people, do not have to become like Jewish people to be followers of Jesus. Now, because you see, this was a real dilemma because Jesus is a Jew. He's the Jewish Messiah. He's the promised Jewish Messiah. He's the son of David. He comes, he dies in Jerusalem. He's definitely a Jewish Messiah, yet the gospel is going forth into all the world. And so the question is, do you have to come into Judaism first to be a follower of Jesus. And that, you see, is what all this 
circumcision talk is about, which is, you know, as Pastor Kevin joked a couple of weeks ago or so, you know, that it even has this verse about the circumcision party, which is, you know, such a horrible phrase, as he said, and I, I agree with that. This, all this circumcision stuff, all that talk is just, that's code for do you need to obey the Mosaic law? That's the question. That, because the circumcision is something that is an important part of the, the law from Moses, the Jewish law. So again, this is a, a hugely and understandably complicated question in the first couple of decades of the church. In fact, it takes the church a lot of wrestling, a lot of heated debates and disagreements. And finally, it's not till the book of Acts and Acts chapter 15, they finally have a big meeting about it and decide, no, clearly the answer is not that you have to become a Jew to become a Christian. And that's a big deal. And that changes everything. Okay. So what Paul is doing, the first thing I want to say what Paul is doing in these verses, he's just reiterating that this is the message that God has given to him that he's called to preach, what we might call a mosaic law-free gospel. The second thing I think Paul is saying is that he wants to be unified with the Jewish Christian leaders that, in Jerusalem, that are in Jerusalem. He calls them the pillars. So Peter, James, and John, and others, he respects them. He wants to be unified with them in his message but if they disagree with him on this, he doesn't give a rip. So that's the very nuanced part of what he's trying to argue here is that he, he wants there to be a connection. He wants there to be a unity between what he's preaching and what they're preaching in Jerusalem. But at the end of the day, if it comes to trusting or believing in them or following them or God, it's very clear that what they are to him matters not. So I think that sums up what happened. So, well, then what does happen with this? Well, thankfully, it worked out, but it was intense. In our verses, Paul tells the story of how after several years of ministry, he says 14 years or so, and there's some other time, earlier time before that, God leads him to go to Jerusalem to have a private conference with the Jerusalem leaders there. These are the big dogs. Again, this is James, Peter, and John. This is, we, we see three people in the gospels, Peter, James, and John, those are not quite the same people. Two of them are Peter, the lead apostle, and John, another original disciple. But this James is a different James. The James of the Gospels has since been killed. He was John's brother and the first of the apostles to be killed. This James is the biological brother of Jesus who had no longer or had not been a follower during Jesus' time, as far as we can tell, but had become a follower of Jesus and now was the leader of the Jerusalem church. So these are the big dogs. And look at those verses, the first two verses again in chapter two. Then after 14 years, Paul says, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, and I took Titus along also. And I, I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. And if you're following along in the book of Acts, which tells a lot of the story of the early church, this, what Paul's referring to here is probably what was happening in Acts chapter 11 when he went and met with them. And here's what's really interesting. Paul chose to take with him two very important people, his old ministry partner, Barnabas, who's a recognized, wise, and faithful Jewish Christian. He's a Jew who's become a Christian. But he also takes Titus, and maybe you can see that's a Latin or a Roman name, who is a disciple of Paul who is a Gentile Christian. So he takes Barnabas and he takes Titus with him. And that means Titus is not circumcised. He's not obeying the law of Moses. He's not, he, he enjoys a good pork chop sandwich and whatever else, right? He's a Gentile. So this is a bold move for Paul to go to Jerusalem, right into the, 
the hive queen, as it were, of the, of the Jerusalem church and to take with him a Jew and a Gentile as representative of what his ministry was, that it include both Jews and Gentiles. And this is representative of what he says, the gospel I preach among the Gentiles. That is, again, that you do not have to obey the Mosaic law. You do not have to become a Jewish person to become a Christian. Now, elsewhere, Paul's going to explain that if a Jewish Christian wants to, you know, eat kosher and circumcise their children and do other observance, certain holidays, et cetera, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But what Paul is very clear about there and here is that no Jewish Christian or any other person should ever say that obeying those things is actually necessary to be a Christian. It's not. He's very clear. So this is what he's going to talk to them about. So they have this Jerusalem private powwow. And Paul says at the end of verse two, you can see it there again, that he wanted to make sure he wasn't running his race in vain. Doesn't mean that he was wondering whether he was right. He means that, you know, it may turn out that we're gonna have to split over this issue and that'll be unfortunate. He doesn't want that to happen, but he is going to follow what God's called him to do. And so he's worried about that when he goes. So you have this meeting with Paul, Barney, and Tito. That's what their friends called them, I'm sure. And James, Peter, and John, they get the issue on the table and they say, do Gentiles have to obey the Mosaic commandments? That's the question in the air. And apparently at the meeting and surrounding it and in the city, certainly there were a lot of Jewish Christians who said, of course they do, duh. This is God's law. This is God's eternal law that he delivered through Moses. Paul is a liberal who's misleading people with his liberal doctrines and practices saying that people don't have to obey the Mosaic covenant. So it was a pretty intense meeting, you can imagine, on both sides. What's Paul's take on this? Well, look at verse four, verses four and five. He says, this matter arose because some false believers, false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So thankfully, these false believers did not win the day with Paul and, and certainly not with Paul, but with Peter, James, and John. In fact, if you look at verses six to 10, we see what Peter, James, and John had to say. Verse six, they added nothing to Paul's message. They said, we agree with you. Verses seven and eight, they recognized that Paul had a calling from God to focus on preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and that Peter especially was going to focus on the Jews, not exclusively. They both ministered to both everywhere, but there was a different focus of their ministries. Verse nine, the JPJ group gave the PBT group the right hand of fellowship. That means they agree with, they're agreeing with each other. They support each other. And that also meant that they gave the Judaizers, the ones who said no, the ones who disagreed with Paul and Peter, James, and John, they, I guess they gave them the, we might call the left foot of unfellowship. <laughs> but of course, these people didn't just go away. They were mad. They had lost. And they, they felt even more strong in their position. And basically what they did is they continually caused trouble for Paul and the rest of the church, constantly stirring up dissension, maligning him, misrepresenting him, saying he said things he didn't say. 
These are what are called in the New Testament sometimes the Judaizers. And Paul had to deal with them the rest of his life. It sucked. They dogged him. They followed him around. They went into churches that he planted like Galatia and said, no, Paul's not true. He's, he's false. And this is what happened to these people. In verse 10, finally, it says, Paul tells us that they only asked one thing of Paul, something he was quite keen about himself, that is to help the poor. Now, this is not just a general statement about helping those in need. That's good and Christian as well. But specifically, this is referring to the collection that Paul was making. Because you see, a great famine had hit the land of Palestine and it was all the Jews were suffering during this time period, during Paul's day. And the Christian, the Jewish Christians were particularly suffering because they had been kicked out of Judaism for their faith in this Jesus. And so they had none of their social network and so many of them were starving. So what Paul did, he went around to all the Gentile churches that he had planted all throughout the Mediterranean, all the non-Jewish churches, and he took offerings from them and took that money and gave it to the Jerusalem Jewish Christians. It's just beautiful. As a sign of their solidarity and a sign of love. So that's what happened. That's what's being described in these verses. Now we can take the second step and say, okay, what, is, what does this all mean? Like what, what is being said by this? And I, I wanna suggest to you that there's a lot of things we could say about these, but I wanna sum it up with these verses with two statements. The first is this. The true gospel gives freedom. The true gospel gives freedom. So in contrast to this slavery disguised as religion, as Paul would call it, Paul is making very clear that the gospel he's preaching gives freedom. This means that we are no longer in bondage to rules and regulations that have nothing to do with the gospel, including the Old Testament law and including the bondage of other people's opinions. In fact, that issue of other people's opinions comes up a lot of times in Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians and Romans, that there are always gonna be people that have differences of opinions about certain issues of things you can do or not do. And he's very clear to say, we need to, be, we need to care about other people's opinions, but we're not bound by them, we're free. This is why Galatians is such an important book in Holy Scripture. I'm a Gospels teacher is what I mostly do in the Gospels, but I find myself regularly going to Galatians to make sense of so many things in the New Testament because it's so clearly teaching about this new covenant where there are no longer distinctions of any sort in value and worth between and practices between Jews or Gentiles, male or female, different races, ethnicities, educational level, socioeconomic status. This is true for Jesus' own ministry. It's true for Paul's. There is this beautiful life-giving reality that the gospel unites and gives freedom to people of all sorts. And as Pastor Kevin spoke about a couple of weeks ago, and we'll see again later in Galatians, of course, freedom here doesn't mean that you and I could just do whatever we want. Quite, quite, that would be quite a misunderstanding. Instead, it means freedom from the bondage of trying to earn favor with God and the slavery that comes from that. And instead, it's the freedom that comes from submitting to Christ as Lord. So that's the first thing I think we could probably take away from this. But here's the second one, and this one's a little bit more pointed. I'm ready for the emails. Number two, there are false versions of the gospel, and these may seem very reasonable and conservative. So verse, chapter two, verse four, again, he talks about these false believers who have infiltrated. Here, 
And in other places in the New Testament, we, we learned there is a category of people that can be called false teachers, false believers in the church and in the world. And when you, when you look at the New Testament and ask, what do these people look like? Well, there are really two kinds. The first is, I think pretty clear, people that teach untrue doctrines about Christianity. So for example, if someone were to teach that Jesus was not fully God, or that he didn't really come in the flesh, he was not incarnated, or to deny the physical resurrection, um, or to say, as what happened in Jesus' own day, that Jesus' miraculous works are being done by a demonic spirit. All those we would call untrue or false doctrines. And the way the New Testament handles this, the way the, they address these, and then particularly the way the church handles this over the next couple of centuries, few centuries after the New Testament, is that they create very important statements or what we call creeds, like the Apostles' Creed and the nicene Constantinopolitan Creed and the symbol of Chalcedon, all these creeds that make it really clear what is the truth that Scripture is teaching and the truth about Jesus. That's one kind of false teacher, anyone who would deny these creeds. There's actually another kind of false teacher in the New Testament, and it's the unexpected and the harder to deal with one, and very striking and shocking to us, and that is those who are too conservative. Yes, you heard me correctly. It is possible in religious matters to be too conservative, to be more conservative than God himself. That, friends, is what's called a Pharisee. These are the people that Jesus is constantly fighting with. They were very morally upright people for the most part and very strong doctrinally in their understanding, but they lacked true godliness. They had an appearance of godliness, but lacked its power because they focused not on what God was doing in the world, but on maintaining their own traditions. 2 Timothy 3, Paul talks about people having an appearance of godliness, but not its power. Matthew 7, Jesus describes people being a wolf in sheep's clothing or skins. They look good, but they have a heart problem. They're not true on the inside. 1 Timothy 4, Paul talks about some people that are false teachers and, and damaging to the church because they're totally into really detailed issues that he calls silly myths, that that's what they're all about, and they're always trying to cause trouble about that. They're contentious. Of course, I'm not saying, Paul's not saying that it's wrong to conserve and preserve ideas and traditions. Of course, there are many good and important traditions, including the creeds, of course, that are very important for us. But what I'm talking about here is we need to recognize there is a human universal experience of Pharisaism that, again, focuses on the external matters of the heart. Sorry, focuses on the external matters rather than on the heart and insists on maintaining traditions without sensitivity to the true matters and what God is doing. And you see, all of us have that in us. I'm not talking about politics or this week's politics or anything. I'm talking about something much deeper than that, which is that all of us have in us the tendency to do what Jesus himself condemns, to tie dill, mint, and cumin, but to neglect the weightier matters. That is, to disproportionately understand what God really cares about. And there's always going to be, be an appeal to this. That's the scary part about it, is that it's always going to appeal and appear to be godliness when you have very intense people who take very intense positions. But that's not the same thing as godliness. And what's amazing is that Paul, of all people, he knows this because he was one of them. 
He was one of the leaders of the Pharisees until he, set, until he met Jesus and saw what he thought was the truth was not. And I always think that in heaven, I think God has this really big filing cabinet that says ironies that make me laugh. And he pulls them out occasionally and reads them and says, that was a good one. And one of them that I think is a huge folder in there, right at the beginning, was what he did with Paul. Paul was this Pharisee of Pharisees, the most rigorous, intense, pharisaical Jew there was. And what does God do with them? He appoints him to be the main minister to the Gentiles, to the people that gave him the heebie-jeebies. They really did. The way they ate and the way they dressed and what they did, they were unclean, right? And not wise and didn't understand the scripture. All the things that he hated, God appointed him to love them, to minister to them, to be like them in many ways, and to be their defender at his own cost. That was a good one, right? It's beautiful irony. And so there are other things we could take away from this text, but I think these two biggest ideas that the true gospel gives freedom and that the, the false gospel can seem like it's good, but it's not. So now, finally, we're at a place where we can ask, so what does this look like for you and me today? I mean, how in the world does all that scripture really shape and form my life and yours? Well, as I was preparing this week and I, I was reading you know, commentaries on Galatians 2, et cetera, I was reading from the great pastor and theologian from the last century, John Stott. And he notes that our text, a lot of people will not get much out of this text. And he says, it seems to be no more than a complicated rigmarole, a visit of Paul to Jerusalem in the first century AD, the question of whether Titus was circumcised or not, a consultation between Paul and the Jerusalem apostles, it all appears very remote and quite unrelated to the 20th century problems. And I thought, exactly, right? All of you lived a very pleasant life this week, not worrying about what to say about this text. But that's what I did all week. I was reading it, pounding my head against it on my knees saying, God, what, what does this mean for us? And you see, especially that's pointed for me because really one of the highlights of my Sunday and really my week is that after I take communion, I usually sit right up here. I love to sit and watch all of you beautiful people come up and partake of the Lord's table. That's really me. I just love to watch people streaming to the table not only to count how many people bump into each other because they're not sure if they're supposed to go to that one or other, and you have that, you have that panic moment, right? That's enjoyable in itself, but someday we'll fix that. But more importantly, I love to sit and watch my brothers and sisters in Christ come forward. Everybody looks nice, but I love to see you come forward, but I'm aware that no matter what you look like on the outside, there is a lot of pain, and brokenness, and fear, confusion, a lot of hiding, a lot of masks, a lot of shame, disappointment, anxiety. And as I sit there, and as I think about preaching and speaking to you, as I do, I always, I just think, Lord, give me something to say that is that is life-giving to these people because they're just trying to make it through life. So I, like, I could give you a bunch of big theological ideas, and those are important, but I want God 
to speak and he wants to speak. And so what, guide, what might God be saying to us this morning? Well, let me, let me just go back to the title that's maybe on your hand out there. I titled today's message, The Freedom for Ourselves and Others That Comes from Gospel Life. And I, I just wanna say something about those two points of that title, freedom for ourselves and freedom for others. So first, freedom for ourselves. Friends, it's this simple. This is the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we will never tire of talking about, that regardless of your status in society, regardless of how good or how bad your past was, because Jesus came into the world, lived, died, was resurrected and ascended to the Father, there is a way, that is the way, to find what life truly is, both now and forever, because we're finally able to be connected to the one who created us. All those longings, all that anxiety and brokenness is a symptom of the fact that we're not connected to God. But the basic, fundamental, irrevocable reality of the gospel is that there is a freedom to now know God no matter who you are, ethnically or educationally or anything, because of Jesus' work. That's what Paul came to know, and that's what we have come to know as well. And this means a freedom from the need to perform, to earn favor with God. It also means a freedom from the need to conform to other people's expectations on issues that don't really matter. And guess what, friends? Almost everything we think matters doesn't matter. Most of the issues we get exercised about are not core realities. There are clear moral rights and wrongs in the Bible, there's no doubt. And there are also attitudes that the Bible is seeking to cultivate in us, such as humility and sacrifice and love. But what there's not is a comprehensive list of all the things that are required of everybody and what your opinion is supposed to be on every kind of issue. How you dress, which occupation you, pursue, you should pursue, how much money you should give or how you should spend your money, where you should live, how you should eat, how you should spend your time, how you should parent, um, whether you're a morning person or a night person or an afternoon person, whether you should have a little purple thing in your hair. Everything, you fill in the blank, almost everything is not a matter of right and wrong, but is a matter of wisdom. And there is freedom. There is amazing freedom for you to be developing as who you are. God cares about who you are. You're not just a number to him. He, you are made in his image and he wants you to develop into the fullness of your humanity. And it's different. There is so much beautiful diversity throughout us and that is reflection of God himself. And so I wanna just encourage you that, that, that this kind of freedom for you to develop into the fullness of who God has made you to be, that's not just sound, that sounds like a bumper sticker or a coffee mug or something at, at Lifeway. That's not the point. The point is God has made you and is seeking to develop you in the way that he has made you in particular. And there is a beautiful freedom in that. And I want you to embrace that. Not to be anxious about other people, not comparing yourself to other people and different callings. That is something beautiful and good. And that is the radical message of the freedom. Now, there will always be people, you see, who are going to seek out to spy or seek to spy out our freedom, as Paul says. And of course, those people are going to be entirely convinced that the issue they're concerned about is a matter of, it's not a matter of freedom, right? 
And if you can think about the Judaizers, these people who were fighting with Paul, they had a pretty good argument, right? I mean, it seems pretty reasonable to argue that, yeah, you have to obey the Mosaic law if you're gonna be a Christian, of the Jew, a follower of the Jewish Messiah. But even on that issue that they were so convinced about, they were wrong. And I just wanna encourage you that if you're struggling, maybe especially, maybe especially young adults, if I can speak to you for a minute, because I've got several, my children are young adults right now, and maybe even middle age as well, because I think something similar happens. A lot of you are, I understand this, you're not sure, you're anxious about what you're supposed to be doing with your life. I understand that. I just wanna say, God is not anxious about you. Do the next thing faithfully and do the next thing in front of you well, and you'll see your way. God is at work in you and there is so much freedom. You don't, if you, as long as you're looking and comparing yourself to others, you will never find freedom. Second point, freedom for others. Remember that opening question I had for you? Are you more anxious about people on your left or on your right? Everybody thinks they're balanced. Well, whatever your tendency is, it's okay. I know which mine is, but we're all different. But I wanna call all of us this morning to something better and more beautiful because if I can give you this image, gospel-centeredness, seeing, coming to know the freedom of the gospel creates in us a, a gravitas, a, a center of gravity, a depth, a, a weight that enables us to give freedom to other people. When you experience freedom, that frees you up to let other people be different because you're not anxious then. You see, Pharisees, fundamentalists, Judaizers, whatever you want to call them, those people get mad at other people's freedom. Gospel-centered people get mad at other people's bondage. And that's what we should be about. And I'm getting this, especially from what happens in verses six to 10. That wonderful conclusion that, this is the biggest takeaway I took from this text, is that Peter and Paul, they all agree they're gonna have different ministries and that's okay. And I guarantee you that the Gentile ministry and the Jewish ministry, it was united under one gospel, but it looked very different. When the Jewish Christians had a church potluck, the diet was different, right? Than when the Gentiles did. What men and women were allowed to do in the services, I would venture a guess, was somewhat different. How parenting happened, whether you circumcise your kids or not, all those things, there was a recognition by the church that the gospel is our unity, the, the, the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection is our unity. And beyond that, there is freedom to have your ministry in different ways. So friends, let me cast this vision for you. Let's build beautiful things and let's be the biggest champions of other people's causes. That is other Christians. Let's build beautiful things. So whatever you're into, whether it's CrossFit or keto diet or adoption or foster care or homeschooling, public schooling, Christian schooling, Christian classical schooling, or if you don't wanna have it in a school, you can have conversations about it, right? Whether it's homeschool ministry, I personally am into country club ministry, whatever it is, whatever your different occupations are, there is goodness and beauty in all these things there's nothing wrong with trying to kind of evangelize people to get on board with what you're doing, but gospel maturity gives us the freedom to say all these other things are different callings. They may or may not be mine, and that's beautiful and good. And friends, I would like to invite you into that way of thinking about your life, especially think about our life together. 
that the gospel gives us this kind of freedom to be champions of each other's differences. And that is good, isn't it? That's the place of freedom. That's the place where you don't have to be anxious about what other people are doing. Yes, there are clear rights and wrongs, but most of the time, it's just differences of opinion. And our identity, our union is so much deeper, so much deeper than all these secondary issues. And that's the beautiful freedom both for ourselves and for others that I think the gospel brings.